Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So John the Baptist, he was no slouch regarding faithfulness, service, boldness, conviction. He was commended, he had commended himself to God. He preached the word, even when it got him into trouble. That's why Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was faithful. He did what God had called him to do. He is the true forerunner to Christ. He prepared the hearts of the people to meet their Savior. He was that voice crying out in the wilderness, Make way and make path for the Lord. And how did he do this? Well, he showed the people of Israel their sinful condition. He showed them God's righteousness and how they had not lived up to it. Even those who were considered the most righteous, the most faithful, the most holy, he called a brood of vipers. You see, the Pharisees thought they were righteous because they kept the law, they were descended from Abraham, so they were good. They viewed themselves as the true Israelites. And because of this, they thought on their own, they had the righteousness of God. And John tears every bit of that down when he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's that fiery conviction and that fearless preaching. And in this, God called people to be baptized. It was sorrow over sin that drove people into those waters as John was baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. It was for sorrowful people. It was for people whose hearts and souls were convicted and stricken by sin. It was for people who knew that they had offended God and man with what they had said and what they had done, and they were willing to admit it. Yet John also spoke of a greater one, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That greater one is Jesus. And as John saw Jesus, he was bold enough to point to this greater one, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. See, John bore witness to what happened at the baptism of Jesus, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. So we see in all of this, what is John's job? What is his calling? 
but to bear faithful witness to Christ. He points to Jesus and says, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He calls him the very Son of God. And that is who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. He is the Son of God come to bear our sins. In preaching this truth, John fulfills his calling before God. He preached the word. He pointed the people to their sin, and he showed the people their Savior. He made them and the people who were prepared through the guidance and the work of the Holy Spirit. And after this, John is happy to fade into the background. All the disciples of John, what does he want them to do? Go follow after Jesus. And therefore, he says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so now all of John's disciples must leave him and follow after Jesus. And that's what's happening in our gospel reading today. Because John didn't fade away into happy retirement. He didn't go find some nice place by the Sea of Galilee, put his feet up, take up a career in fishing and eating good food. No, he kept on preaching. God had given him the calling to preach, and John did it. He preached against sin. He called men to repentance. He pointed them to Jesus. Yet a problem arose for John when one of his hearers took great offense at what he had to say. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, he had stolen his brother's wife. And these two were now living in sin and adultery, and John did not hesitate to point this out and call even the king of the Jews to repentance. Yeah, very often when people who hold power are criticized, they lash out. And so, Herod had John thrown into prison. And now the success, the following, the notoriety that John had gained through his preaching was all gone. And now he's left in the shame and the suffering of dark imprisonment. John knew that this would probably happen to him. John knew he was supposed to fade away and disappear so that Christ could be seen. His decrease and his sorrow, that was everyone's gain. Yet John's disciples needed help in seeing this. Because all they could see was that their leader and their teacher, he was suffering in prison. He did the right thing, and now he was in trouble for it. And so what did John do for his disciples? How did he help them see things in the right way? Well, he sent them to Jesus. They come to Jesus and ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in this question, you can see the struggle that John's disciples are going through. Ever since Jesus showed up, things had been going poorly for them and their teacher. Now John was in prison, in sorrow, and in humility. They begin to ask these questions. How can this Jesus be good for us? How can this be the true Messiah? His faithful witness, the one who was sent to be his herald to prepare the way for him, that wonderful forerunner, he now sits alone in prison. Is that the reward he gets for faithfulness? Is this how God treats his servants? No, maybe we're wrong about this Jesus guy. You see, in their minds, their sorrow and their Savior, they couldn't coexist. And so, what does John do for his disciples who are now cast into this doubt and this pain and this confusion? He does what he's always done. He points them to Jesus. Go ask Jesus who he is. 
Is he the one? Or should you look for someone else? This really is what every Christian must do when their sorrows in this world cause them to doubt. They're to go to Jesus. So often when people experience hardship and trouble in this life, they begin to distance themselves from God. Their church attendance drops off a little bit. People read less of the scriptures. They begin to pray less. It's because they're blinded. It's because they're either distracted or they feel unworthy or they begin to doubt that God even cares for them or has any love for them. They may even begin to doubt that God even exists or if he does exist, well, we can't really receive him as a gracious God because look how painful my life is. And it's because they cannot comprehend how there could be a good and gracious God who loves and saves along with the sorrow and the pain of this life. And sorrow and pain are things that we must experience in this world. The reason that we experience this, this sorrow and pain, this struggle, this doubt, this sin, is because this world is sinful and we have sin. The curse of sin weighs heavily upon everything and everyone in this creation. And that means that there will be pain. There will be trials. There will be suffering. There will be sadness. Every sorrow that you can imagine will befall human beings in this life. From the fall of Adam to this very day, the creation groans under the weight of the curse of sin. That's what St. Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now what that means, that until the last day, this creation is going to groan under the weight of sin. Things are going to be hard. Doing the faithful thing will often cause us problems in this life. Good people will suffer for doing good things. We will have physical pain. We will be hurt. We will hurt others. We will see death. And it will cut to our hearts and bind us so that all we can see is how everything in creation is messed up. And sinfully, we will try to avoid this. We'll either try to fix it or to distract ourselves from it. We'll try to numb ourselves to this reality. We'll binge on TV will embrace just pleasure by the, by the levels we can, food, drink, alcohol, whatever else we can do to ignore the fact that this world is messed up. We'll begin hedonist. We'll become selfish. We'll do anything we can. It's just as long as we can ignore the reality of sin. That's not what John has his disciples do. When they see the effects of this sinful world set before them, what does John do? He sends his disciples to Jesus. He sends them to the one who redeems us from the futility of sin. He shows John's disciples that that is exactly what he's come to do, to undo the curse, to free us from the terror of sin. And so when they ask Jesus if he's the one, he says, go tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is telling John's disciples to look at what he is doing to all these terrible effects of sin in the world. There are those who are blind, lame, leprous, deaf, dying, and dead. And what is Jesus doing for them? He's undoing what sin has wrought in this world. He is healing the sick. He's restoring the blind and the deaf. He's cleansing and healing the lepers. He's even raising the dead. And above and beyond all of this, the poor have the good news preached to them. Sinners are hearing about their Savior. The forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to those who need to hear it. Those who are alarmed by their sin, those who are alarmed by the effect of sin in this world, they are being comforted by their God. When Jesus answers John's disciples, he's proclaiming him to be their Savior. He's calling them to believe in himself. He's comforting them with the greatest comfort that can be given. In their sorrow, God has come down from heaven. He has seen them in their need. He has beheld them in their grief. And he is not a distant God. He does not ignore his people's cries. And he does not forget their need for salvation. But he comes to be their savior. In Isaiah it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What does this mean other than that Christ has come to die for sinners? He's come to comfort us and to relieve us from this curse of sin. And how does he do it? He bears that sin upon himself. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or St. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body to the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. This response from Jesus did not undo the fact that John was in prison. It does not undo the fact that they were saddened by their teacher's suffering. But what it does do is promise that this suffering does not endure and that God stands before his people in perfect compassion and care for them in the midst of their sorrow. He does not leave us to wallow in the despair of our sin. He does not abandon us to die in hell forever. No, he relieves us from this burden by bearing the burden himself. Jesus dies for sinners. On the cross, as Christ does, so do all the sins in this world die. They die, and they are buried with him. And as he rises from the grave, our sins remain there. And this ought to give us joy. Even in the midst of our sorrow, even in our heartache and our hardship, we can return to this one certain and reliable truth. Jesus has died for me. He has suffered and borne the cross for me. He has taken my sins away. This is what our children this morning 
were baptized into. They were baptized into the joy of the gospel of Christ. In this baptism, they received the certainty of God's promise. And they can say from this day onward, without a doubt, Jesus has died for me. Jesus has forgiven my sins. Jesus has rescued me from the peril of hell. This is what it says in Romans 6, where St. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in 1 Peter 3, it says, Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. All that believe and are baptized into Christ are blessed with that promise. They can say, my sins are forgiven me. They're no longer bound to this world and its futility and its suffering, but they're bound to the eternal kingdom of heaven. Baptized Christians can, with great certainty and joy, lift up their hearts to God in the assurance that God has done a new work in them as he has bound them to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, as it says in the scriptures, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This hope of eternal life is the hope that John the Baptist points us to. It's the hope that he sends his disciples to. And it is the hope that we have been called to believe in and find comfort in as we dwell in this fallen world. It is the hope of the gospel. And this does not put us to shame, but rather it fills our deepest sorrows with joy. That's what today is all about. It's about the joy that we have in Jesus, that rose-colored or pink candle on our Advent wreath symbolizes joy. Gaudate Sunday. Gaudate means rejoice. It comes from our intro that where we read, once again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is from Philippians chapter three, where, or chapter four, where St. Paul is talking about the joy of the gospel because God is near. He has come in mercy to help and to save sinners. Rejoice, Paul says. He says this during his own imprisonment because Paul knows, just like John, who Jesus is. He knows the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So what does Paul say? Rejoice. And as we think about this wonderful promise, we think about the joy of the gospel, we think about the forgiveness of sins, we think about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. No sorrow in this creation can cancel the joy that has been given to us. We can have joy when we are faced with loss, with death, with sadness, with guilt. And that is because of who Jesus is. It's because of what Jesus does. 
Jesus comes to be our Savior. He comes to redeem us from the power of sin, death, and the devil. And these are miserable enemies to have, no doubt about it. As they say, misery loves company, and so the wages of sin is death. All of sin and falls short of the glory of God. And so from the fall of Adam to this very day, sinners have died. And this terrible reality is hard to reckon with. As we struggle, we have a foe who loves to blind us to all of our hope. The devil loves to throw the reality of sin into our faces. It's as, that's all he wants us to see. That's all he wants us to experience in this life. And he loves for us to just wallow in the filth of our sin and the sadness that death brings. And he wants us to think that it's perfectly normal to be this miserable. He wants a life free from sin and death and misery to be completely unimaginable to you all. He wants us to languish in hopelessness as we stand before the painful realities of sin and death and dying and confusion and fear and misery and pain, the devil sees our blind misery and he says, ha, I got you. You're mine. I've broken them. I win. Yet we have a Lord who has overcome the devil. We have a God who has conquered the evil one and all of his ugly weapons. And even as the devil works through the temptations to bring sin into this world, Christ is born to overcome this world. As Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And how does he do that? How does he overcome the world? How does he stomp out the power of the devil? How does he free us from our bondage to sin and death? It's by dying. It's by being the perfection of the glory of God who has made man. And this perfect God-man willingly takes up his cross to die so that sinners might be forgiven. That death, suffering, and alienation of God that we deserve, it's placed on God himself. And Jesus bears the weight, the wrath, the indignity, the pain, and the punishment of our sin. And we are made righteous. We are made holy. We are made free. We are freed from the devil's angry lies. We are free from the curse that is brought upon us through sin. All sorrow, all misery, all evil, that gives way to the joy of the gospel. And this is all rooted in the promise of who Jesus is. That's what John wanted his disciples to see. He wanted them to see Jesus and be comforted. He wanted them to have the same joy that he has even during his imprisonment and impending death. It's all because Jesus relieves us from the curse of our sin. And he does this through his promises. He promises to forgive sinners and take them out of the pain and the sorrow and the futility of this fallen world. He promises to wipe every tear from our eyes and bless us with everlasting joy before the throne of God. This was John's hope. It was Paul's hope. It is your hope. It's these two babies. It is their hope. It was St. Peter's hope when he said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. 
John did not live to see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but he held it by faith, and it gave him joy. And that is the same faith that we cling to now, as we know that Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has risen. Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins. And that faith in Christ brings us joy. Joy that cannot be stomped out by the sorrows or the sin or the evil or the lies of this world. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for delivering us from the futility and sorrow of our sinful lives. And we praise you for sending your Son into this world to bear the sins of the world. Help us to receive this great promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation with firm and trusting faith so that we can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.